0: Welcome back to another episode of In Search of Wisdom. I hope everyone had a happy and safe new year. On today's episode, my guest is Professor Shimon Edelman, the author of Life, Death, and Other Inconvenient Truths. Shimon is a professor at Cornell University and is interested in all aspects of mind, brain, behavior, and the human condition. In the conversation, Shimon provides insights on ambition, anxiety, uncertainty, happiness, perception, and much more. You can get the show notes and links to resources at perennialleader.com. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Shimon Edelman. Well, Shimon, welcome to In Search of Wisdom.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: I am as well. I'm really excited to discuss this book, Life, Death, and Other Inconvenient Truths. So great title and great book. So I'm happy to get into it with you. Before we touch on the book, though, I was wondering if you could open up with how you describe your work in the world today.
1: I have a very mottled background. I started uh, as a, a, an aspiring electrical engineer. Uh, then I came across a book, actually. This is the famous or infamous book that uh, launched a thousand careers, uh, Hofstadter's Escher Bach, which kind of integrated the brain uh, science with AI and a bit of mathematics and meta mathematics and uh, I got sucked into that and I decided I want to switch to computer science which I did and uh though for my postdoc I switched again to psychology experimental psychology cognitive I guess cognitive psychology uh computational neuroscience I've been all over the place I worked on on pretty much everything in 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 um cognitive science uh, up to including most recently consciousness and so my current project is about consciousness
0: What do you think is maybe a driving factor to some of that curiosity and in clarity to to really change past that not all of us always do?
1: Uh, curiosity is the thing you just mentioned it uh, but uh, I also want to mention that I've been incredibly privileged that I could pursue all those different directions uh, Maybe most prominently my current place in the world. I've been uh, on the Cornell faculty for 22, over 22 years now, and I have complete freedom uh, in choosing not only what I research, but also what I teach, which is really wonderful. And uh, I guess curiosity uh, that can be satisfied is one of the best things to have in the world. <laughs>
0: I love it. Is there a favorite course, you know, today that you in, enjoy teaching more than others? I, I get easily distracted. I, mm-hmm. I almost said bored, but no, no
1: boredom doesn't come into the picture. So I have my service course, which is computational psychology. This is what uh, I took on to teach and have been teaching for a while. I wrote a textbook for that as well. But then I have uh, a choice of uh, advanced courses or seminars, and I do um, explore in in this regard. I taught seminars on inequality, power, and happiness, or on science fiction, on um, uh, morality, and the evolution of cooperation. Uh, Inconvenient Truths for one year, two semesters, which uh, is how I tried my book on innocent students. I think they liked it mostly. And most recently, this semester, I'm wrapping up a seminar on, uh, my title is Varieties of Freedom, which has been very exciting.
0: Well, as you mentioned there in the title of the book, These Other Inconvenient Truths, what would you hope a reader would maybe come away with after reading this book that you put out? Uh, a
1: couple of things, maybe one of them, uh, a better idea than what they had had before they opened the book of how some aspects of the world work. It's always good to understand this very complicated place we are in, and uh, I mean, it's really complicated, and of course one book doesn't suffice to explain it, but a a better take, maybe some varied takes, which is why I include so many quotes from um, smarter and more famous people. And then maybe some uh, lessons for personal use. I mean, personal lessons on my part for the personal use of the readers. Um, This is why there are anecdotes throughout the book from my childhood, growing up years, my relationships with my parents, with my children. Uh, I think it's kind of pretty human universal what you find here. Of course, it's a particular take on the universals, but... uh, I think that's the best we can offer with any kind of safety.
0: Well, as we were discussing before we hit record, I love the framework of the book with these shorter chapters. So 38 shorter chapters, and I I picked out five or six that we can maybe touch on, and uh, I, I think the listeners will get a lot out of it. And the first one I have on the list is ambition. And in the executive summary, you have these short, kind of concise statements on each chapter and and this one is ambition unchecked is a kind of mind rot and you write in this chapter you have this comparison to table salt is to the human body it's impossible to live without but seriously life shortening if overused could you speak a bit about ambition here yeah,
1: by the way, I I want to point out that the executive summary rhymes, okay? <laughs> yeah. I, I went to great pains to make it <laughs> rhyme because I wanted to ape Tolkien in uh, this long list uh, that the ants put together about everything. Anyway, uh, with regard to ambition, I was surprised doing research for this that uh, Adam Smith, um, who people whose name people usually associate with basically unchecked ambition, um, very explicitly warned his students against uh, precisely unchecked ambition. So he, um, he published a book uh, about morals, uh, as in I guess ways of behaving or being in the world before he published this famous um, uh, Wealth of Nations you know this uh, bible of capitalism and uh, he had been teaching uh, very young students at that time uh, people would go to college sometimes at the age of 14 or 15 uh, he taught them um, ways of 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 fitting into the world and and one of the biggest warnings that he offered was this warning against trying to emulate the great people and thereby uh, uh, destroying your own life f- because of aiming too high or, or asking or expecting too much. I think it's a great lesson. I, I, uh, uh, I think it should be taught more widely <laughs> and, yeah. and thats I guess that's why I included it in this in this chapter and that's why I included the chapter. It's, it's luckily it's actually pretty early on in the book because the book is
0: arranged alphabetically. Do you see this idea connecting with, say, in Buddhism the the Middle Way, or maybe Aristotle and, and the Golden Mean? How do you do you see a connection there?
1: Uh, definitely, the the Golden Mean is what it is. Uh, with regard to Buddhism, uh, I guess one has to distinguish between the doctrine and the version of the doctrine that is sold to the multitudes. The doctrine basically says abolish all, uh, all ambition and all desire. Uh, of course, the middle way says something more moderate, uh, because it is aimed. It is that part of the doctrine that's aimed at, at lay people who are not expected to just go into retreat, and uh, and uh, hide from the world. But yes, of course, there is um, for those who have been reading the classics in all the major. Literary and philosophical traditions in the world, this, this would not be any kind of news. But uh, I think maybe because of that, in part, it bears restating. So we should return to those ideas, uh, revisit them periodically, especially when it seems like uh, uh, the world is going crazy in 17 different ways and maybe a check can be put on that.
0: Why? Why would you say that is difficult for us obviously there's many things that are challenging for us but (laughs) that seems to be one that is that is difficult that we don't i guess seem to to get until a bit maybe later in life of of seeing the the both and we kind of just see one particular path instead of uh the middle way
1: i think a lot of it has to do with education um Maybe cutting to the chase with regard to those of us in the West, I'm putting air quotes around the West. Um, The Enlightenment really screwed up things uh, by, on the one hand, waving this um, lure of uh, freedom, but then at the same time, personal freedom, defining freedom in exclusively what appears on scrutiny to be exclusively egotistic uh terms and uh and thereby uh, uh unleashing this 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 ambition that uh, uh makes us pursue career goals um, maybe uh, material goals all that stuff uh if i think back to my education i can certainly see that uh, maybe not explicitly stated in that many words but i was not educated for um, any kind of um, uh, community-oriented existence and that's really uh, ironic because i grew up in the former ussr that was nominally uh, socialist with with aspiration towards aspirations towards communism of course it was in fact State capitalism, but that, that's another uh, conversation. But we, we were educated for ambition. I was, I went to one of the best, I guess I would say the best school in town. It was pretty, pretty big town. And you know, the best school in town, that's the beginning of it. Uh, we knew that we had to excel. There were periodic uh, competitions with other schools in math, in chess, and that kind of stuff. And uh, I think now looking back at it, uh, as I try to express in that chapter and also in some others in the book, this sets you up uh, maybe for success, but also for a lot of misery. Mm. And there is also a lot of collateral damage to others. So it's not only your own misery that you um, uh, get paid in uh, when what you pursue is some kind of unchecked personal ambition.
0: And maybe that's a good transition to a, another chapter around anxiety. You write anxiety is our constant companion. Uh, there's no such thing as a as a stress-free life.
1: Yes, that's uh, uh, that chapter begins, if I remember, with a quote from the, the physician. Uh, the neuroscientist who defined the concept, the modern concept of stress in biology, and Selye Hans Selye, and it was he who pointed out that all creatures experience stress, and uh, uh, had we not been experiencing stress, we would not be able properly to respond to, you know, the um, uh, outrageous fortune that bombards us, and so that's a physiological stress is a physiological adaptation, but. Uh, i think we are unique our species is unique in in the variety of means with which we can set ourselves up for stress and explicit worrying using language and rumination so anxiety that gets expressed in language and gets chewed over and over again uh, i should say this is also a major factor in education, and I, I keep coming back to education because I kind of belatedly realized how central it is to everything in our existence. Uh, students are stressed. Students uh, in schools are stressed. Students in elite schools are really stressed. <laughs> to coin a word, students at the university like Cornell uh, are really, really high strung. And then that's that makes life very difficult. That makes uh, the enjoyment of life dif- difficult. It also makes the the education, the, the the picking up of information, difficult. So it kind of defeats the
0: purpose. If there was someone listening, or or maybe one of your students that is feeling this stress, and it's maybe not necessarily becoming un unmanageable, but it's it's a bit of a problem. What advice, is there anything that comes to mind of thinking about anxiety and stress yeah. in a different way?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- there is enough personal advice out there that uh, I feel I should add something that's not often or not often enough discussed. I just came across a figure um, on Twitter. I, I followed the Uh, Cornell Graduate Students Association, which tried to unionize and was prevented by the administration. So Cornell administration is union busting like any other corporation, apparently. Mm. Uh, And uh, the figure I came across was 73% of graduate students expressed or mentioned uh, mental health problems as a major uh, impediment in their functioning 73 percent that's a lot yeah and uh, a lot of that can be alleviated by looking for and building systemic solutions so i it's not for nothing that i mentioned unionization if you have a union that protects your rights that probably in one fell swoop removes half of the sources of stress uh, in the workplace for graduate students this would be the university the lab Um, a lot of our uh, what seems to be uh, our to to, to be our personal problems issues you know we have well any number of euphemisms to use for that are actually manifestations of systemic problems and uh, i'm i'm trying to do what i can i'm obviously i'm not in department of psychology but i'm not a clinical person but uh, when an opportunity arises to actually do something about it i take it so right now i'm supervising independent research by an undergraduate so this is her uh, term project um, uh, looking at uh, uh, mental health uh, in in various settings not just the university setting and specifically trying to identify the systemic causes and, and possibly the systemic solutions.
0: How do you think about uncertainty? We're in the time of um, couple years into this end of this pandemic, it seems like there's a lot of uncertainty of not knowing whether it's going to end or flare up and, and obviously there's uncertainty about mm-hmm. many, many things. But how do you connect that with the anxiety and, and stress? Yeah, uncertainty
1: will always be there and I think we should be grateful in part for that. Uh, a, a quote uh, from one of my favorite authors, Ursula Le Guin, from The Left Hand of Darkness, uh, the, the one of the protagonists there says something to the effect that uh, un- uncertainty is uh, what makes life possible. I mean, imagine everything being determined for you. Uh, this is it, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, and of course, nothing being certain at all is pretty terrifying as well. So here, too, we uh, first of all should expect some degree of uncertainty, but we should try to walk the, the middle way. And actually, what I mentioned earlier in the way of uh, getting to know how the world works, that, that reduces the uncertainty to some extent, to the extent that you can control it. Actually, there is beautiful work in uh, computational cognitive science all of which is deeply fundamentally probabilistic about how agents can manage uncertainty by building models of the world that's actually a central component of consciousness having a predictive model that uh, allows you to some extent to manage uncertainty Uh, with regard to Causes that are beyond our personal control. That's, I think, that kind of harks back to what I mentioned just now: um, systemic issues. Um, things could be, you know, as they say, another world is possible. Things could be a bit quieter on on, on all those fronts, and uh, maybe if we join forces collectively, we can get the world to that better place but right now yeah we have we have to manage uncertainty I have flights booked for next week when the semester ends I'm about to go on my uh one of my hiking backpacking trips and uh, this new corona variant you know who knows what 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 will happen I'm I'm kind of tolerant of that that degree of uncertainty I just hope I don't come down with COVID in the middle of nowhere with my backpack but uh that's the trade-off I want to be out there and I'm willing to to tolerate a certain degree of uncertainty
0: how about happiness which is your previous books topic how does maybe redefining how we think about happiness help with this constant anxiety
1: Uh, I think uh, it it it's it's pretty well known now, and more, more and more people realize that you cannot have happiness at a constant high level, that there have to be ups and downs. In fact, if you think about it in evolutionary terms, basically happiness or all, all affect uh, is there in the service of um, managing behavior. Um You can only get uh, the ox to walk uh, so far by offering the ox some hay. Uh, Sometimes you have to use a stimulus, you know, this sharpened stick that you prod the ox with. Uh, And and that sounds negative, but uh, you can't have positive without the negative. And so we have the upswings and downswings. Uh, We have the long-term, longer-term average, which is mood and I think by recognizing the nature of this and why we have feelings and, and, and emotions and, and moods it helps un- understand uh, or, or maybe even manage them better and um, that's uh, in fact uh, I think a mainstay of several uh, successful maybe the only successful approach is to therapy you know cognitive behavioral the emotional emotion management uh, therapy um so um that sounds maybe a bit un-american because we are supposed as americans we are supposed to like be happy all the time as happy as possible but that just doesn't work like that
0: the the opening line that you have in the in the summary there is happiness misery each has its turn which I love that. Right. And as you say, it, it's not necessarily how we initially think about it. It's like that, um, I guess it's what we were talking about in the beginning of maybe that opposite pole to happiness has to exist for happiness to be a, a thing. Um, in writing that last book, what would you say are are some things that you learned about happiness that you didn't know beforehand? I uh,
1: ha- had to revisit, or I, I made
0: myself revisit,
1: various episodes from my life, including, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, um, relationships with my parents and my children. I think that was a unique opportunity I hadn't done before. I have not done that before, uh, before I sat down to write this book. Uh, each each of my kids received a copy. Uh, I, I sure hope they read it, but you know, I had no way of, of, of making sure. Um, and so that that was a, a great opportunity.
0: The uh, chapter on perception I also r- really enjoyed. And you pose this question in the in the chapter: Given that everything we perceive is a virtual construct, how can we keep believing that our senses reveal to us? the world as it really is
1: that is one of the central questions in consciousness so first maybe i should explain why why this virtual reality thing it, it sounds like maybe a fad or a, an unnecessary importation of um, you know computer science or tech concepts uh, in here but it's not only necessary it's uh, uh It's absolutely obligatory. It can't be any other way. If you think about uh, your visual perception right now at the moment, uh, one can uh, take you to a vision lab and chart, map your perceived location of yourself. And maybe not surprisingly, it would be a couple of centimeters, you know, an inch and a half, behind the bridge of your nose assuming that you have two functional eyes uh that's where you perceive yourself to be actually squint a little bit you can see the tip of your nose i'm doing it right now I, I can see it it's kind of large enough for me to be able to see without even squinting a whole lot uh, the point is that at that location uh, it's completely dark it's inside your skull there's no light there uh, whatever you see is a construct Uh, made by your brain to serve various purposes. So your visual perception on that account is inherently uh, a a virtual setup. It's computed, again, to serve certain purposes of of guiding behavior and so on. Uh, Now, it would not do for you to keep thinking about how, wow, this is not real, it's virtual. That would be a great obstacle uh, on the way to proper uh, rapid management of behavior. So the way that the brain sets itself up in this regard is to pretend that it's not virtual. So you don't see, um, of course, the inside of your skull, you don't see even the patterns of light and dark on your retinas what you see is objects in the world as if there is nothing in between the objects and you and that again on a just on even a very brief scrutiny turns out to be a a myth but it's a myth that's very useful for us Uh, useful as judged by whom what not by whom by what by evolution And uh, had the virtual reality that the brain computes for itself been out of touch with whatever is out there, um, the owner of the brain would not do very well. So there is this evolutionary pressure to bring the virtual reality into some kind of correspondence with what's really out there. And some kind doesn't mean an absolute replica. It means some orderly relationships, probably probabilistically reliable relationships, that can be computed in time, and uh, that make explicit certain properties of the world that are useful for guiding behavior. So therefore, the first of all, the virtual reality and second, the the myth that it is real.
0: Maybe a connected idea that I, I believe was in this particular chapter on perception. But you write something in the book about not seeing homeless people before. Um, but a- as you kind of elaborate in the book that they were there, it just, you, you were not attuned to, to noticing that and kind of being, you know, seeing the, the whole mm-hmm. picture, I guess, if you will. How can we maybe come to those realizations to see? Um, and maybe it was in the chapter on suffering but to to see a bigger picture that it that includes some of the suffering and and some of the the people Mm -hmm. that are having a lot of challenges
1: yeah you know i'm reminded of a cartoon i have uh, on my laptop I, uh, i i come across it a while ago um a line drawing kind of black and white line drawing of the world and uh, there is a meadow um, and uh, the sun is shining a couple clouds in the sky and uh, a bunny munching on a carrot and so that's how the world appears to a normal person then how scientists see the world and it's the same exactly the same image overlaid with a bunch of map you know, Maxwell's equations for the sun shining, for the light, and all of that. And uh, so I think, uh, again, harking back and returning to this notion of getting to know how the world works, When when you pause and think, and when you take a course or two maybe, or read a few books, you start connecting the dots and things appear in a... Uh, richer form. It's never, I, I think it's never less. You never, by learning something about the world, you never see it diminished. You always see it as enriched. Uh, and uh, so if you see a social situation, which for our species is so central, our lives are social, we are social animals. Uh, missing that, by the way, was was maybe one of the central faults of the European Enlightenment. Uh, so, uh, thinking about social situations, thinking, asking why, why is the situation as it is? Why is that person doing what they do? Um, kind of raising your sights to the larger, the bigger picture. Um, why? Why is that McDonald's finding it hard to hire people to work for it? Why is there a drone raid uh, three countries over? Why is the sea level rising? Uh, you ask all those questions, and, and there are answers to be had, uh, to, to be sure, not uh, ultimate and, uh, and, and complete and, uh, and uh, foolproof answers, but at least provisional answers. And uh, I think by educating ourselves and helping educate others uh, to ask questions and and to look for answers in the right places, we can um, make sure that everyone sees as much as possible about every situation.
0: I love this idea of provisional answers. It really comes through in the in the book of i I kind of want to use the term of of holding some of these concepts loosely maybe it's definitely does not read like maybe a traditional self-help or something like that where there's a lot of certainty and it sounds like things as you said in the very beginning it's it's complex and it's uh these are these are difficult things but I, I wanted to ask you about, as you're describing that that chapter on perception, I'm recently reading a, a new book that came out, The Socratic Method. And um, to me, it seems like these some of these ancient ideas of humility, or all the way back to Socrates, of just coming to the realization that we don't quite know, in just as he describes, everyone... That he's talking to, you know, thinks that they know, and, you know, he comes to the conclusion that maybe he's the wisest because he's the only one that acknowledges that he just doesn't quite know. Um, mm-hmm. how important do you see that as a, as a scientist and as you connect, you know, the, these ideas in, in the book?
1: Well, I think, uh, Two effective ways to sell books are, one is to write a book uh, in which everything is certain, and two is to write a book in which everything is uncertain. So the second is Socrates' pretense, I should say. I mean, he was, as, as we know, he lived in the times of sophists, you know, there were professional debaters who would debate, uh, would take any position and even completely bullshit ones and, and, and just just for the sake of discussion, discuss and defend that position. But uh, there is a lot of that kind of sophism in Socrates' position as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first one to point it out. I, I think it's, it's, it's not productive to hold that view and expect something out of it more than uh, you know, the shock value. Mm-hmm. It certainly holds a lot of shock value. It may have a particular appeal to people of uh, young age, um, the the stage where everything is questioned and and uh, uh, conventional answers are being denied. Uh, but uh, it's just not true that we don't know anything. And it's not a productive stance. Even we had we know nothing, just to keep repeating that would be an unproductive approach to to any kind of attempt to get to know something. You know, there are more recent examples. Uh, I remember when I was in my twenties, um, I was not a big fan of Socrates because we only have Socrates uh, secondhand mm. through Plato, and I really disliked Plato mm. because of his totalitarianism. But I was very much into Nietzsche, but, you know, I, I tried to reread Nietzsche relatively recently, and I just, you know, it's okay, it's fun to read, but oh, come on, <laughs> the stance is is pretty ridiculous. And you can learn something from it, maybe you can learn a lot from it, but to take it as as an old-fashioned philosophical systems, you know, they used to have systems in philosophy. I think this actually is no longer the case, that would be my impression. Uh, to hold that to be a system and then should defend it against all attacks, intellectual attacks, I, I, that, that that would not do. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the greatest philosophers of the, the previous century, uh, Willard Van Orman Quine, I think, uh, pointed out that there is or should not be. I think he said there is no first philosophy. So no first philosophy. Uh, he, he was, of course, he was. He was brought up in in the tradition of positivism. He was, I think, a student of Rudolf Carnap, the Vienna Circle, and all of that. A lot of respect to science. So again, we don't have to buy into logical positivism. This what is now called scientism, which is a terrible, terrible expression, terrible word, because it puts you off science. You know, in in, in pandemic times, it's not good to use the label scientism. Anyway. Uh, Quine thought there should not be first philosophy. I completely agree. I think there's great value in philosophy, including extreme stances like Nietzsche's or or Socrates's. But uh, but we have science. We have science of uh, of um, physics. We have chemistry. We have biology, and we have pretty damn good science of the human. And uh, I almost call this the humanities, but. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is one one side of this this coin. You have the humanities as traditionally construed, but then you also have the human sciences, and I see no boundary between the two. Uh, I try to convey to my students the idea there should be no boundary, and we can learn about the human condition uh, from reading novels, but also from... Studying sociology and psychology and anthropology
0: and history. How about this idea of provisional answers, as you, as you said, is that, would you see that connected at all kind of as a golden mean between maybe that extreme certainty that exists and on the other end, Socrates and and Nietzsche uh, of this total uncertainty what, what what is the golden mean be, between those maybe
1: so elevating the doctrine of the golden mean such as it is to the status of an overarching you know meta doctrine would be precisely the mistake that that i'm trying to warn against uh, there are branches of science where we have i'm, I'm hesitating should i say certainty we have certainty In some regards, I mean, you know, we know how photosynthesis works. We know what electromagnetic radiation is like, what laws it it obeys. Uh, We know, you know, quantum mechanics is described, I think, correctly as the most numerically, the most successful theory ever. Our entire civilization, the electronics and all of that is built on top of that. I mean, there are some fundamental questions to ask even about quantum mechanics. And uh, this would be probably too much of a digression, but <laughs> one can ask fundamental questions there. But in, in a way of a, a quantitative theory that affords prediction, quantum mechanics is extremely successful. You have to have more fingers than you actually do to count the number of decimal places to describe the precision to which you can predict or explain things using the mathematics of quantum mechanics. So, you know, to say, uh, yes, but maybe there is still some mystery there. Well, there, there is no mystery. There, there are mysteries in other places maybe, but I actually don't like the word mystery very much. Uh, there are things to be studied there are things to be discussed maybe debated but uh, when something is described as a mystery or someone writes in the media scientists are mystified well ask those scientists whether or not they are mystified they would say you know maybe we are we are stumped I mean I don't know what's going on here but I'm trying to I'm going to try to find out do my best to find out what's going on am I mystified I don't know Mm -hmm. I I'm, I'm not mystified by much I guess maybe that's my
0: uh character flaw. <laughs> How about the chapter on on emptiness? You write emptiness is the nature of things. The ultimate truth is as we know emptiness. <laughs> Could you hold hold my hand there and walk walk us through that one?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh There is a very common misreading of the Buddhist doctrine of of emptiness, shunyata. Uh, It is very often, very simplistically uh, taken to mean that something like nothing exists, or something like that. The actual doctrine states that uh, there are no absolute. Truths, there's no absolute existence, everything exists relative to other things, which sounds again maybe something, maybe is a bit of mystification here, but uh, in fact, um, if you think of it in terms of physics, it kind of makes sense. There are now a couple of approaches by physicists who are very famous, who have the best credentials, to the effect that. Uh, One can build physics from the bottom up, including what is now described in terms of quantum mechanics, uh, based on the idea that uh, the fundamental component of the universe out of which everything is built is uh, observation. So something observes something, or to put it in other uh, words... Something, some event, has an effect on another event. So that takes the observer, the concept of observation, out of the picture. So we we are not mystified into asking who is the observer. Well, you know, an electron uh, travels through space and hits another electron or, or is hit by a photon. That's an interaction. So in a sense, the electron observed the photon. So it interacted with it. And so you think of everything in the universe interacting with itself, and the interactions weave uh, the fabric of everything, and uh, and that necessarily makes everything dependent, not on everything else, because uh, if you take special relativity seriously, uh, you know, the hard limit on the speed of light which by the way is absolutely certain there's no mystery about it I mean you can ask why but it is what it is so uh, I cannot in any way affect something that's outside my light cone that's like too far from me for me to affect it within the time I have at my disposal right so within those limits everything affects everything and so you have essentially the very same Um, notion that uh, this Buddhist concept of emptiness uh, came out of it it grew out of a a previous a a Hindu notion that predated it the so called Indra's web this web uh, sometimes described metaphorically as jewels suspended in space and each each of them reflects all of the others so everything affects everything and uh, so if you put it this way, um, the mystery kind of mostly disappears, maybe completely disappears. Uh, as I said, this is the basis for the kind of physics, new physics, that is put forward by people like Carlo Rovelli um, or Lee Smolin. And, uh, and now we can kind of scroll back and ask, okay, so what implications does this realization have for the real world. And, and there are some implications that can be worked out, but um, a very astute observation that uh, uh, I was lucky to have come across says that uh, if you think it through once you've realized that this kind of emptiness is what describes the world the best, it leaves you in exactly the same state that you started from. So it has no effect or should have no effect on your subsequent behavior. This was actually pointed out to me by a student who is now, I think he's I think he just got his tenure. Um in one of my courses on on consciousness a long time ago, maybe ten or twelve years ago. Uh Yakub Limanovsky in a term paper wrote exactly this. And I said, Wow, of course, yes. Wow, this is this is deep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And uh uh, yeah, and you know, and I I think this this can help. I mean, obviously, I just tried I weighed my hands a lot, which the the listeners cannot see, and I tried to give the gist of of some very complex stuff in just a couple of minutes. But this should give uh, the listeners some leads to follow to understand things a bit better, and maybe you know take the edge off this uh, over-popularization of Buddhism, which is so. Common in uh, somehow in, in brain sciences, in,
0: in psychology these days. Well, this has been great. Our, our time has flown by, and I think we have time for one last chapter, which is complexity, which you just mentioned. And you write, complexity has the mind grasping it at, at straws. And I'll, I'll quote something you write in the chapter. And It's, we have developed certain safeguards that keep us from getting bogged down in intractability while taking care of the business of daily survival. One such mechanism is emotions, which are computational shortcuts.
1: This is computer science stuff. Uh, There are provable things in computer science. I mean, computer science is a branch of mathematics. It's not actually a science uh, you set up some pre- premises, you set up axioms, and you prove theorems, which, um, again, should not be taken, the, the word theorem should not be taken as something that's provisional. If your axioms hold, then your theorems uh, hold as well. So one can prove various intractability results uh, in computer science, certain things that we can define. Uh, cannot be computed. So we can come up, people have come up with definitions of concepts which can be defined but not computed effectively. Certain properties of certain mathematical structures which actually come up in situations um, that involve an agent trying to deal with the world. Uh, so all, all psychology is computational, and uh, as such, it is bound by the same laws of mathematics. Actually, and the same intractability results apply. So we would like, for instance, to optimize our behavior, but we cannot because um, it would take too long. It would take you know number of seconds larger than the number of elementary particles in the universe to compute things optimally. So we settle down for things that are good enough. We settle down for shortcuts. And uh, some of those shortcuts specifically in the context of, again, of an agent that uh, builds a model of the rest of the world and tries to use it to predict things. uh, Some of those uh, shortcuts turn up or uh, are seen on reflection to be exactly emotions. So with regards specifically to predictions, there's a pretty well-developed theory now um, that, that's the general approach called predictive coding, the predictive coding theory of uh, the brain, pretty much everything in cognition. It's a very widely applicable uh, approach. Uh, if you think of a prediction, uh, you can try to Uh, evaluate it as a good prediction or, or bad prediction in terms of how precise it is. So, obviously, precise predictions with a small margin of error are preferable over predictions with a wide margin of error. Now, if you act to learn the world and so improve your predictions, you know, you look this way or that way to get hold of information that might help you improve your predictions, if the the, the information item that you just got hold of actually allowed you to reduce the margin of error, uh, you are entitled to feeling good. So in fact, that theory posits that uh, value, what psychologists or biologists call value, is the... Uh, prediction error. So literally the, the value of the prediction error constitutes the agent's current appraisal of the situation. Is it good or is it bad? Am I feeling good or am I feeling bad? Of course the agent doesn't have to think about it. The agent just feels uh, this is it's a very strong statement. It equates numbers that describe what's going on in your brain with the feelings. It's not like the feelings are derived from those predictions. They are the predictions. Um, And of course, what lurks in the background, all of this is tractability. So uh, agents would very much like, uh, which means evolution really pressures the agents to appreciate the situation in which they are not surprised by what's coming at them from the world. Mm-hmm. But surprise cannot be quantified because to know whether or not something is surprise, uh, uh, full of surprise for me, I need to know the complete probability distribution over everything in the world, which I don't have access to. Mm-hmm. But there are some computational shortcuts. So this is the developments uh, carried out recently by Carl Friston, by some other people, very, very uh, active field. In computational cognitive science, now uh, there are uh, developments that show how um, uh, an agent can take shortcuts and circumvent the impossibility. Uh, instead of aiming for something that's optimal, uh, it can aim, it should aim, and then can fulfill um, the, the the desire. To compute something that's tractable and can be used, useful and, and, and then can be used to, to, um, again, I almost said optimize. No, just to, to, to conduct itself in a way that's, that's good enough. So, satisficing is the, the term that has been coined in cognitive science to describe this. I think by Herb Simon, who got the Nobel Prize for economics a while ago, psychologist, 50, 60 years ago.
0: Wow. Well, this has been fascinating. This has been a, a masterclass Shimon. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your wisdom with the, with myself and the listeners. I've got just one final wrap up question that we, that we ask all the, all the guests that come on in, it's around wisdom from a very practical in daily life um, perspective. How do you define or, or think about wisdom in daily life? Uh,
1: that's very much an open question I, I keep every time I, I um, uh, come across an actual empirical paper that quantifies that uh, I grab it and try to see how it fits in in the bigger picture I just downloaded the other day a paper uh, the, the journal is new ideas in psychology and uh, the paper is about the specific culture, wisdom, cultural synergy and social change, a Taiwanese perspective. So in the paper, they actually define wisdom. There, there are pretty well known and widely accepted definitions of wisdom, which often, and you mentioned Aristotle earlier, uh, often go back to Aristotelian or, or classical Chinese or classical Hindu concepts of wisdom as being uh, embedded in a community and and being judged by the community to be wise. By the way, a, a key component in the standard takes on wisdom is you cannot just declare, well, you can, but normally people don't just declare themselves to be wise. They are judged to be wise by others and uh i i came recently across uh, actually in in the context of the seminar that i taught this semester the seminar about freedom i came across um uh a saying by confucius uh i i will not try to look up the quote right now uh but uh, the gist of it is uh uh he mentioned sub, subsequent the, the decades of his life. When he was, he was 20, he, he did this or that. When he was 30, um, uh, he discovered what other people do. When he was 40, something along those lines, uh, he knew um, that there is a mandate of heaven, there are rules. When he was 50, he, he knew what those rules were when he was 60 or 70, he found himself uh, being able or following those rules while, while doing exactly what he wanted, <laughs> presumably, of course, because he wanted just what the, the, the heaven uh, has mandated. I think that's a pretty interesting take on, on wisdom. It, it's, a, it's a very strange take on freedom. It's very counterintuitive. It's very much against the, the Western notion of freedom, where we have this uh, absolute liberty to do whatever we want, no matter the consequences to others or ourselves, especially others. And, uh, of course, by mandate of heaven, uh, he, he might have meant the modern interpretation would be the societal framework and constraints. And I think uh, taking the community and bringing it into the picture is a big, big component. A great start on the path towards wisdom would be to do that.
0: Well, that is great. And that's a great way to, to wrap it up. Where would you point people interested in, in learning more about you and, and your work in the world? Uh, I have a website, I'm
1: easy to Google. Uh, all my papers, all my publications uh, are online. Uh, you can try to download them and skim and read, and uh, I welcome questions, if remarks, people want to email me. My email is also out there, and uh, I usually reply uh, pretty quickly.
0: Professor Edelman, thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.